Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I am joined by Vanessa Miller. She is the Senior Director of Food and Beverage for 21C Museum Hotels. She's also the Executive Chef at Metropole, which is the restaurant inside the 21C Hotel in Cincinnati, Ohio. I first kind of learned about Vanessa really when she took over the restaurant. It was kind of middle of COVID when she took it over, and there was a bunch of different stuff that was written about the restaurant by all the local publications all the ones in Cincinnati. And it, they were basically describing how this used to be a gem restaurant in the city. And then it kind of flatlined and just became this kind of also ran restaurant. And she brought it back to life essentially. And now, you know, she's in a, a new senior role um, involved with all the hotels and restaurants, all the properties across the U.S. And they open new restaurants and new hotels and everything like that. So she gets into all that. But the main thing and the main reason I wanted to have her on was she spent two years working at a restaurant in Provincetown, Massachusetts. And a lot of you probably aren't familiar with Provincetown, Massachusetts, where that is or whatever. Maybe a handful of you are. I know Janice would be from Tiny Spoon Chef just because she's from the area and everything. But I grew up out there. I went to school there, high school, middle school there too as well. So I was really curious as to how somebody with her resume, her pedigree, wound up in Provincetown, Massachusetts for two years. And she gets into all that. She worked in New York, Boston, how she kind of wound up in Cincinnati. You know, she's kind of from the area and everything too as well. So we cover all that in her career. That's kind of why I originally want to have her on. And then, you know, we'll be eating at Metropole ourselves pretty soon too as well. Super excited about that. The food looks awesome. Heard nothing but great things from different people around Cincinnati and people that have been there. So super excited to try the food for, you know, myself the first time. You can follow her on Instagram at miniature underscore van is her personal account. Also the restaurant you can follow at Metropole on Walnut. And then you can also follow the hotel at 21C Cincinnati. And then the overall hotel account too, which is at 21C Hotels. You can follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. We're on all the other social medias, but mainly we use Instagram for everything else. We're either Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob 1, depending on the platform. Check out our website. It's just spoonmob.com. We have different profiles of all the chefs and sommeliers and hospitality industry people that come on the podcast. We uh, build out a page. So all their contact information is there where you can find them on Instagram and everything like that. What restaurant they're working with or for or whatever. Food photos, you know, from when we visited uh, their establishment and dined there firsthand. We put those up on the page too. They eventually make their way to Instagram, but they pretty much go on the website first. There's a place where you guys can write in, you know, questions, comments, feedback uh, through the contact portal too as well. You can also reach us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com, but make sure to follow the podcast on whatever platform that you use. We have links to all the episodes on the website. Everybody's individual page uh, is linked to their episode, but we also have a running master list on the website too as well. So you can find any episode. We pretty much shuffle all the pages, uh, latest episode to earliest. So when you're scrolling, you'll be like, why are these names not in alphabetical order or anything like that? That's kind of the order system there. But you want to make sure to follow the podcast because new episodes drop Thursdays, 1 a.m. It'll download directly into your player. We also, right now this month, are releasing two episodes a week, so Tuesdays and Thursdays, both at 1 a.m., so you want to make sure that you're following, subscribed, uh, whatever it is, to the podcast on whatever app you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music. We're on all of them. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel. We basically put all the episodes up on YouTube a week after they debut on the podcast apps. 
Um, some people prefer to use YouTube as their you know, podcast player, so we put it up there for them. But if you're one of those people, that's available to you as well. But without any further delays, here is my conversation with Chef Vanessa Miller, the executive chef of Metropole in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the senior director of food and beverage for 21C Museum Hotels. Thanks again for agreeing to come on the podcast. Take some time out of your day. I know you're pretty busy with being promoted to a more senior position within kind of the 21C hotel group, which I want to get into kind of what you're doing now uh, since you've been involved with them and everything. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody. You know, how did you kind of first get involved with cooking? Because you're originally from Cincinnati, right? I grew up born and raised in Cincinnati and kind of started my career in restaurants in the front of house. Uh, I was 16 and I, you know, wanted gas money. And my mom said, well, you better go get a job. I uh, found a, the closest possible restaurant to my house right around the corner and started kind of as a server's assistant there. And then when I left Cincinnati to go to college, I, I moved to Boston and I continued to work in restaurants there. And it was while I was waiting tables in Boston that I started to see food that really inspired me and really made me think, man, I want to cook that, you know, really fresh ingredients, really wonderful seafood. I spent a lot of time begging the chef at the restaurant that I was waiting tables at to let me pick up some prep shifts and get back in the kitchen. And after a couple of months of begging, he finally caved in. And after my first shift, I, I never looked back. So the first restaurant that you ever worked in in high school, what kind of style restaurant was it? You know, local Italian place or pizza or what? It was pizza. Yeah, it was pizza. It was uh, Dewey's Pizza, which is now a chain in, in a couple of different cities. By no means was it fine dining or, or high end, uh, but it was fast paced. And I grew up playing team sports and I, you know, I did that all through college. The feeling of being on the floor during a Friday night or Saturday night service was the same feeling that I got, you know, going into a game. And I absolutely loved it. I loved the teamwork of it. I loved how, you know, everybody had their role and had to play their part. And I loved that you could directly affect a positive outcome with your input. So there were a lot of things that, that really spoke to what drives me as a person about being in that restaurant. And that's kind of the, the feeling that I chased when I decided to continue working in restaurants in college. When you decided to go to college, I mean, you went to Tufts University out in Boston, got a degree in economics. What was your intended career path at that point? Like, why did you decide to go to Boston? I went to Boston because I had family there and I went to Tufts because I wanted to continue to play sports in college. And I knew that they had a, a, a good team and a team that I could, could walk on to. And I did just that. I had no idea for a very long time what I wanted to do. I liked economics uh, and I liked political science, which is what I minored in. And I liked them mostly because of the way that they taught you about how to think analytically and how to identify patterns and think about patterns. Uh, but I wasn't particularly driven by the like, specific subject matter, right? Like I would be fine never having to think about macroeconomics again. But what I liked was the way that it challenged you to think. And so the timing of kind of taking a step into the kitchen for the first time happened the summer after my junior year of college. That is when it clicked for me. And thank God it did because I had no plans. I had no idea what I was going to do. And then it just like became so clear to me in that instant that the second that I graduated, I just threw myself head first into as many kitchen jobs as I could find. What sport did you walk on for? Uh, basketball, which is unique given my five foot two stature, but I was fast. When you start working in restaurants, initially, I think you started out in the front of the house as like a server. So what was it about the kitchen that you saw that like you gravitated towards that you made you want to be in there? 
it was the ingredients. You know, I really fell in love with the idea of manipulating ingredients and working with them and turning them into something else. Right around this time was when Top Chef started getting really popular. It was maybe in like season two, three, four. And I watched that religiously. And there was just something about the way that like the chefs moved and the like the creative challenges that they were given that like I wanted to be able to do that and I wanted to you know I I became obsessed with cookbooks to this day like all of my money is in cookbooks I don't like I don't have a retirement plan I've got my cookbook collection and so I kind of like obsessed over these images that I was seeing you know and these things that I was reading you know uh Thomas Keller's the uh, the French Laundry Cookbook, right? And like his little kind of treatises on individual ingredients and pasta, you know, and I would drag that massive book around with me in my backpack and I would read it on uh, the bus on the way to work. I obsessed with this idea that I could craft those things. And I also obsessed a little bit over the idea that like I had to be the best, like the competitive athlete in me was really drawn to this idea that like, oh, it is quite easy to tell if you are one of the best chefs or if you're one of the worst, right? Like people will tell you. And I think I I crave that kind of validation. I chase that kind of like that high. And so I think that really also sparked something in me. Now you're kind of self-taught too. Like, yes, you worked in restaurants and, and learned that way, but you never went to culinary school, right? Is that something that you ever considered at any point or was it just you knew that you could learn more in restaurants? I didn't know. I definitely considered it. And certainly, you know, for a while thought that that was going to be what I would have to do. But the restaurant that I started, uh, where I had been waiting tables, and then the chef let me into the kitchen, um, there was a sous chef there who had gone to culinary school. And I really liked him. And I trusted him. And he kind of took me under his wing and taught me a lot of stuff. And I I point blank asked him, like, do you think I need to go to culinary school? And the way that he put it to me was just so perfect. He said, listen, you can either pay money to learn or you can get paid money to learn, right? You're going to learn either way, you know? And then he kind of elaborated on the fact that like the things that I would learn by working, like would also tend to be more practical and applicable to the real world of cooking rather than kind of existing in this bubble. And so when he put it to me like that, it was just super clear to me that I'm pretty good at going out there and making it clear that I want to be taught. And I think that's a a big reason that I was able to be so successful so quickly is because, you know, in this industry, it's high need, right? And so as a chef now, if I see a, a cook or a line cook or a prep cook who so clearly wants to learn more and wants to take on more and wants to do more, that's less that I have to do, right? That's somebody that I can trust to have this intrinsic motivation to do it the right way. I was lucky enough to to work for some people who really took an interest in teaching me. That was kind of the second piece of that puzzle is if I had not been working in rest restaurants where the chefs wanted to to see me grow and wanted to teach me and wanted to you know be a part of that story it wouldn't have happened so fast and i may have ended up deciding to to go to culinary school i don't know that kind of moment in that framework of like pay to learn or you can get paid to learn uh granted it was you know eight dollars an hour but that was coming in and not going out so that was certainly that math worked out in my head if someone in your kitchen now came up to you and said you know i want to be a professional chef own my own restaurant one day. Do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you tell them? I'd tell them no. It's more expensive now than it's ever been, right? And I think there's a lot of leverage in terms of pay that that line cooks have now that they didn't have when I started. Like I'm not exaggerating when I say that I was making eight dollars an hour when I first started cooking. One of the good things to come out of kind of the shock to the system that the pandemic has been has been just the increase in in general wage rates across the board. And you know now we're starting line cooks at twenty bucks an hour, and I think that's a great thing to be able to do. And it's an important thing for us as an industry to to do if we're going to continue 
continue to have sustainable growth um, and be taken seriously. I, I again, I think it's more important that somebody put themselves out there as wanting to learn and wanting to be great. You know, if I hear somebody say, I, I want to be you, right? Like, I want to be like you. I want to do what you do. I can teach you how to do that in this kitchen. They can't teach you how to do that in culinary school. And I think a lot of chefs feel that way. Like, if you just want to spend time cutting vegetables perfectly, like, we need a lot of mirror floss. You can go stand in that corner and, you know, cut all day. Shortly after you're done with college, you wind up getting your first executive chef job. How did that happen? Yeah, that happened too fast, too soon. I essentially what happened is the the chef that I had convinced to kind of, you know, let me pop into the kitchen uh, after my junior year. When I went back to, you know, going to school for my senior year, he got a job in, in the south end of Boston at a, a higher end restaurant. And when I was done and ready to fully throw myself in, I called him and said, like, I, I want to come work for you again. And he said, all right, show up tomorrow. So I started to work for him. And the restaurant group uh, that he was a part of was larger. There were a couple of different restaurants. And the director of culinary came in and worked with us one night that first week and saw something in me and, and said, like, I, because at that point, I had also taken a couple of other jobs. So I was working at three different restaurants, you know, having a hard time keeping track of my schedule. And he said, like, quit those other jobs, come work for me, I'm going to put you on salary, we're gonna, like, like, it wasn't a managerial position, it was absolutely taking advantage of me. Uh, and, you know, in the sense that, like, we'll put you on salary, and we'll just won't have to pay you overtime. But we'll kind of cycle you through all of our restaurants. And like, you will learn as much as you want to. And so I spent about six months doing that, got promoted to, to being a sous chef in one of the restaurants. And about a month later, uh, my former boss left uh, that that first restaurant that I'd gone to. And Jared, who who was the director of culinary ops, looked at me and he said, I have a really stupid idea that we're going to try. And he's like, I'm going to put you over at Noche as the executive chef. And it's going to be really hard and you're not totally ready, but we'll figure it out. Small restaurant that was open five nights a week. It was the only kind of, of restaurant where that could work. And, you know, the line was small on, on most nights. It was me and one other person. And then on our busy nights, it was me and two other people plus a dishwasher. Um, so it was it was trial by fire. Certainly, I, I kind of look back at some of the food that I put out then and also some of the like just managerial things that I did then. And like I, I makes my skin crawl because I was young and stupid and still very much like honing my my craft in terms of cooking, but also like honing my craft in terms of leadership, making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. It was 100% something that was really valuable for me. And it was really hard. And a lot of times, like, it didn't feel great. But I know, looking back now, that it is absolutely what set me up uh, for this, you know, just general trajectory that I've been on. Back during that time period, like, how important is having that title? You know, you're probably not ready. Like, your culinary director knows you're not ready. If you wind up having the executive chef title, that'll open up so many other doors faster than if you're sous chef or whatever. Totally. And, and that's what ended up happening. I ended up using kind of the time that I had had there to slingshot me into a, a, an exec chef role in, in a new restaurant opening in New York. Uh, and that would never have been on the table for me otherwise. You know, so I think it was important in terms of the role that that title played in what was available to me next. 
it made no difference in kind of my day to day at the time. I was a prep cook and I was a line cook and I was the person who was writing the menu, but I was also a dishwasher on Monday night. You know, like it felt a lot less glamorous than maybe would have been in other circumstances. But what it, again, what it opened up for me was just, I can't trade that. Because you wind up moving to New York, you're executive chef at the Dollaway. How does that all happen? Is that through networking somebody finds out about you or what? Yeah, basically. Um, I had a good friend who I went to college with who uh, knew these two women in New York who were getting ready to open up uh, what had initially, they just wanted to be a bar, but they found this space that they absolutely fell in love with that had uh, you know, a, a dining room upstairs and a full kitchen and no idea uh, how to run a restaurant. I got on a mega bus and I went from Boston to, to New York on you know th- that overnight bus that gets you into to New York at like 6 a.m. And I met with them and they were like, okay, we, we want to do a tasting. And so I trudged back a week later with a cooler on a mega bus. Like it was all just, I look at, back at it now and I laugh and, and we tasted some food and they liked what I did. And I knew before I, I signed on to the project that there was only so far that it was going to be able to go because uh, opening a restaurant with people who have never even worked in a restaurant before, like there's a lot of bad ideas. Like there's a lot of things about that that are a bad idea. I knew it was probably going to run its course for me pretty quickly. But man, what a ridiculous opportunity at age 24 to be given the reins to concept and open a restaurant on somebody else's dime in New York City, right? Like I knew whether or not I seated or I failed, that it was going to be an invaluable experience. And it was terrifying and exciting and terrifying, but I knew I had to do it. And so God, I think they initially offered me like they said, like, we can pay you $30,000. And I was like, I, how about five, right? Like, it was just like, let me just get there, get in the city and and hopefully start to kind of build a name for myself. And I put a lot of pressure on myself. I thought like, all right, this is your chance to do it. And if you can't get a New York Times review out of this, or people don't start to know who you are after this, like, sorry, like, you're just always going to be mediocre. Like I had this ridiculous amount of pressure that I put on myself uh, around it. It was just another thing that made it really hard for it to be sustainable. Like I had in my mind and I'm, I'm 34 now. And so I laugh at this. I had in my mind that if I didn't make it onto some 30 under 30 list that like my career, I didn't do what I was supposed to. I did not make it onto a 30 under 30 list. Uh, Now I'm looking at 40 under 40. I had these really just totally self-induced like standards and thoughts about like what success looked like and what I needed to make happen to be considered a success at that time. Again, you know, it was an incredible opportunity to go through this whole process and do it in a way that was relatively low risk for me. And so I I wanted to take advantage of that. What's the biggest challenge of being a first time executive chef in New York City? How different is it running a restaurant in New York City versus other cities, even Boston? I mean, Boston's a big city, but it's not New York. You are literally like one of so many, right? Like there's a ridiculous number of restaurants in New York City. There's a ridiculous number of really good restaurants in New York City. And so it is the toughest city to stand out in. And so it's also one of the tougher cities, like because there are so many great restaurants, it's harder there to build a team that has a ton of experience because somebody with great experience could go work at 11 Madison Park if they wanted to, right? 
why are they going to want to work for me, you know, a, a 24 year old who's running their first restaurant in New York. And so I had to get really comfortable with the idea that the the most important piece of, of what I do as a chef would be to teach and to coach because I was not getting the people with five years of cooking experience under their belt. I was getting the people who were just like me, like a, a year and a half before, like, oh, I think I'm at want to cook. I had to, to be great with that. And I had to be okay with it. And I had to, rather than like sitting there and like bemoan it, I had to embrace it and make sure that I was doing the teaching. And I also had to make sure that I didn't stop learning. I think that was something that I realized really quickly is that, man, when you're in charge, nobody else teaches you anything, right? Like no one's going to tell you, hey, you did that wrong. Let me show you how to do it, right? Like you can feel out if you did it wrong or not, but but nobody else is going to be interested in your development anymore. And so you have to make sure that you are continu- continuing to develop yourself. And so that was also something that I was really cognizant of. Um, I think that was the biggest thing about being in New York for me that was different was just that there was such competition for that were experienced and that had to get really comfortable faster than I knew I was going to uh, with, with being a coach and being a teacher. Then you wind up moving maybe a year and a half or so later, beginning in 2014. You've back to Massachusetts, moved to Provincetown, which is where basically I grew up. So I'm very familiar with the area. So how did you wind up there? Because that's very off the beaten path. It's a tourist town, so it's not a place that does much in the winter. It's not a place that's really known for any sort of restaurant scene or anything like that. I mean, kind of the biggest claim to fame is that Anthony Bourdain cooked there like back in the 70s. I became really disillusioned with New York. And a lot of that was from A, the pressure that I put on myself and B, the way that that I I had to live there, right? Like it was really hard to pay rent and to, to have a life outside of work making what I was making. And there was something very magical about that experience for sure. But it also, it soured me on on New York City. And I was like, I don't like it here. I don't want to be here anymore. And I think that coupled just with the amount of just like work that I had been doing in that that year, year and a half of, of being there, I was burnt out. I was so burnt out, not just on the city, but being in a spotlight and, and all of that. And so, you know, I was walking home one night and my phone rings and it's Jared, the culinary director from Noche. And he's like, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm in New York, but I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. He's like, well, company I work for in Cape Cod, we're opening a new restaurant in Provincetown and we need somebody I trust to come out here and run it. So I want to move to Cape Cod. I said, yes, right there. And then I was like, I trust this guy. He's not going to like put me in a bad spot. Really wanted an escape plan from from New York. Like what better place to escape to than the literal end of the world? Uh, it's the very tip of Cape Cod and Provincetown. And so I ended up, I moved to Provincetown January 11th in the middle of a, of a harsh New England winter. I had a little cottage that was a block away from the beach. And I spent two months not talking to anybody. And it was, I call it my winter of solitude. And it was the most like necessary thing for me at that point. It was my decompression. And I came out of that winter being like, all right, I'm ready to and do this. Like I feel reassured in who I am and what I want to do. And you know, what I what I hoped to get out of my time in Cape Cod, because I knew I wasn't going to be there forever because again, I was young and single and living in a town that had like three thousand people in it, right? That that actually lived there. I 
decided that what I wanted to get out of it was the ability to, to run a really big operation. And, and that's what I did there, right? It was the biggest operation that I had run to date. Uh, we had about 260 seat dining room, an additional outdoor patio. We had a fish market that was attached to us on one side that we did all the fabrication prep and, and ordering and staffing for, as well as a walk-up window to the back side of the kitchen where people could walk up and get lobster rolls and things like that. So we had kind of these three different outlets that were all rolled up into one, a huge team uh, that was, you know, a, a mix of little 16-year-olds who were local to Cape Cod to, you know, 45-year-old Jamaicans who were there on H-2B visas. So it was just such a wide range of people that that is where I had to get really good at managing the relationships that your teammates have, a line standpoint, but also from a like personalities and dealing with all of those standpoint. And that's what I knew I wanted to get out of my time there was to be able to say, yeah, I ran a pretty massive operation. And that's what I did. What was the space before it was Max? I tried figuring this out the other day and I couldn't figure it out. I moved 2004. My aunt and one cousin are still in Provincetown and my sister's in kind of middle Cape. I couldn't figure out what that space was. I know it was a restaurant, but I can't remember. I genuinely don't know. When I got there, the majority of like the reno had already been done. And so it was very much like the restaurant that it ended up being like was visible and I could see it. So I, I don't know what it used to be. Did... Anybody tell you when you were moving there in the middle of winter that there's not much going on? I had a lot of people being like, what the hell are you doing? And, and like, even Jared was like, you don't have to come out until March. And I was like, oh, no, I have to come out sooner. I so desperately needed it. I, I had been sprinting for so long um, because really, you know, all of those developments in my career happened so fast, right? I finished school and then immediately threw myself into working a couple of jobs. And then like, it was off to the races and I didn't take a vacation. I didn't, you know, like none of that. It was, it was just full, full, full. And this is not unique to me, right? This is very much kind of the, the nature of the industry, but these were not 40 hour work. These were 80 hour work weeks. These were, you know, 14, 15, 16 days in a row. I just so desperately needed time just spent like recovering from that and time spent recharging. I never once didn't believe that it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. I just knew that if I didn't give myself a break, both like from work, but also just from like outside stimulation in general, that I wasn't going to be able to continue to. Um, and so getting that time alone with not much else going on and not ever having to make plans and being able to just like sit on my couch and I got reacquainted with all my cookbooks that I hadn't read since, you know, I had time and, and all of those things like that was really important for me you know, as important as any other move has been in my career. It increased my longevity and put me back in a place where I was like, okay, this is definitely what I want to be doing and I'm ready to do it again. You know, you're probably working, but did you ever get to either Ben and Jerry's for the free cone day or Spiritus Pizza for the free slice day? I got to Spiritus for the free slice day, for sure. That was a, that was a regular haunt of mine and I was not going to miss a free slice. You know, you're there for a couple of years and you wind up eventually going back to New York City, take over as executive chef at the Royalton. Why did you jump back into New York City? I started to understand that maybe the reason I didn't love New York had nothing to do with New York and had everything to do with how I was having to live there, right? The work that I was having to do. You know, I think one of the things that is probably not surprising to anybody who's listening to this who heard me say that I opened a restaurant with two people who had never worked in a restaurant, that was a pretty toxic experience, right? Like there were a lot of things about it that were harder than they needed to be. And a lot of things about that 
there's there's an entire book that I could write on that that year and a half of my life. And maybe one day I will, right? But like, again, being able to step away from it and kind of also just grow up a little bit, right? 24 is so young, 26, 27 isn't much older, but there's a lot of growing that you do during that that time. And being able to get the distance and understand that like, no, that wasn't about New York. That was about you. I had this thing in me that was like, I want to go try that again. I want to take what I know now and and see if I can really do it. I was, you know, in a position where um, one of our regulars out at, at Provincetown was a woman who did a lot of work for the New York City Wine and Food Festival. It was reaching the end of my my second full kind of season out there. And I was sitting at a bar with a friend having a beer and I got an email from her. And she kind of had forwarded this email that she received from the, the general manager of, of the Royalton, who basically said, Annie, like I need to kind of overhaul Royalton's food and bev ops. And I need a chef. I need somebody who's young and hungry and wants to make a mark. Do you know anybody? And she forwarded it to me. She said, do you mind if I give him your name? Yes, absolutely. And so like, I had that, like, I thrive when I feel like an underdog. And that was like the ultimate underdog framework, right? Like here is this institution, right? That is not nearly, you know, it's not shining nearly as bright as it once did that need somebody to come in and help reinvigorate it. And I loved that chip on my shoulder. I loved the thought of being the one to do that. I met with the general manager and he was young too, right? He was in his early thirties, which is really young to be the GM of a hotel in New York City. Uh, He had come up through food and beverage. Uh, which is also really unique. A lot of people who are leading hotels just anywhere haven't come up through the food and beverage side that come up through the room side and the operations side. And so he was another person that I'm like, I I think I can learn a lot from this guy. Uh, And so it kind of was a no brainer to me. It was an opportunity to to go back and try to do New York City the right way. All my friends were still there. It felt like the kind of thing where if I could perform the way I know I can perform, that I would have the opportunity uh, to really kind of write my own path there. And that that is what ended up happening. Seven months in, you wind up taking on food and beverage duties. When I got hired, the food and beverage director was was on their way out. And again, it was an influx of, you know, new forward thinking people, myself included, that were kind of pushing out some of the the old guard. And, you know, she decided it wasn't for her anymore. And so that left a void in the department for a little bit. And the GM decided not to immediately hire for that position and to kind of let like see where the pieces fell. That void, like when there's a leadership void, right? You can either bemoan it or you can step up into it. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm learning beverage ordering. Like I asked to take on these additional things. I really enjoyed that side of it, right? Like I studied econ in college. I love a good spreadsheet as much as I like a perfectly seared scallop, right? Like I love, and I'm in my happy place when whatever job I'm doing allows me to do a little bit of both. I really, really thrived in, in that that kind of just environment where I was able to have the creative outlet and play with food, but also was given the opportunity to, to kind of flex muscles that I had never really had the chance to flex before, but thought I would probably be good at. And so I got to run our P&Ls and I got to handle all of our, I slowly got to take that on. And then at some point, I think this became Brian, the GM's plan before it was something that, that I knew was going to happen. But a couple of months later, he calls me up to his office and said, here's an offer letter for the job that you're already doing. You know, the other thing that was unique about uh, that property that I will never do again, but I'm so glad I did 
is that it was a union staff property, right? So all of the hourly employees from dishwashers to, you know, everybody in food and beverage service, bartenders, and everybody else were part of the, a pretty powerful union in New York City. And that came with a ton of challenges, right? There were some really strict rules about what we could and could not do, how we had to handle scheduling, how we hand, had to handle when people called out, all of these things. I never want to have to deal with those things again. Like I got berated and yelled at by union reps asking me, are you fucking stupid? Do you not know? Like it's this game that they play. Man, did I really refine my management skills there, right? Because in a union property, if the team, the hourly team, the union employees do not like you, you will not get anything done. You have to find a way to work with what you have and to take a team that they don't need to try hard, right? Like their jobs are guaranteed in a lot of ways. You have to make them want to try hard for you. And that's a really powerful thing to be able to do. Uh, and really just understanding, I think, kind of the um, the mechanisms at play there and really refining that piece of my, my leadership style was really, really invaluable. And was hard, but I learned a lot. And I didn't realize how much I had learned until I moved into other jobs eventually and was like, oh, I know how to handle this situation. I got this. Was the union there because it was a hotel property? Obviously, Las Vegas has the giant culinary union, which is super important. Uh, that's all you ever hear about anytime there's a political election going on is which way are they going to vote? But I'm assuming the union got in because it was a hotel property. That's exactly it. And the hotel union is very, very strong in New York City. And the way that some hotels and more now have started to kind of work to get around that is they don't actually operate their own food and beverage, right? They outsource it. Private restaurants are not unionized, but hotels are and can be. That's kind of the, the game that, that people play. But yeah, the entire entire hourly team was a part of the union. And there were some really great things about that. We've never had anybody who's encountered, you know, a union kitchen before on the podcast. So I'm just curious because it does make sense where you see this new hotel opening up in New York and it's like, and so-and-so has been tapped to run, you know, the restaurant site. And it's, that makes a lot of sense. Makes you understand why. Yeah. And Chicago as well. Yeah. Cause I think most of us probably just assume like, oh, well, you know, it helps with press. It's another location for that chef or whatever to kind of oversee yada, yada, yada. But it's also probably the biggest proponent is yes, we don't have to have a unionized kitchen in here. Again, there are some things that are really wonderful and really important about it. But there are also some, some challenges that um, I always felt that the the interests of the union itself were being put over the long-term interests of the individual employees it was representing. It just wasn't sustainable. So a really good example of that is about six months into my time at Royal Tim, we decided to eliminate room service. The union guidelines required us to have, as long as it was open, it had to be staffed in a certain way, right? Those employees made $25 an hour. We figured out that it would, would have been a better business model for us to take a $20 bill and hand it to everybody who was checking in and say, go have breakfast on us tomorrow morning, anywhere else but here, than it would have been to, to have our, our room service open because of how much, right? And so those are jobs that are lost. And so that, I think, is, is a, a really interesting thing about the way that the union acts in New York City in particular is that like there are some pieces of it that are actually going to make the business so unsustainable that those people are ultimately going to lose their jobs because somebody's going to close an outlet or somebody's going to decide we are just going to start outsourcing our food and beverage and 
now all these union employees don't have jobs. I loved what it did for the individual employees in the moment. Like there's something really fabulous about being able to slash having to, to pay your dishwasher $28 an hour and for everybody to have access to insurance and for everybody uh, to have guaranteed PTO, like all of those things. But again, the kind of tough side and the dark side of it is that it doesn't necessarily make all that sustainable. And so how long is that all going to last? Because the money has to come from somewhere and it gets passed on to the customer and the room rate. And then, you know, when people are, especially in New York City, there's a hotel or two on every block and you start looking at room prices and it's like, well, why am I going to stay here if it's $100 more versus two blocks over? I'm in Manhattan either way. It doesn't matter, you know, and then the boutique hotel winds up closing and becomes something else or gets bought and rebranded or whatever. Then kind of next up for you is, I think Hill Country Hospitality, you wind up going over there. Now that's based in Texas, but I'm assuming you were just kind of running their New York restaurants and everything because they're like barbecue and everything. They're based in New York. So the kind of story of that company is, uh, you know, the, the owner's a Texas boy, you know, from, from right outside of uh, Austin and Lockwood, which is Hill Country, you know, decided that he wanted to bring the food and barbecue that he grew up eating to, to New York. I joined that company at an interesting time. They had just hired a new director, I guess like COO, essentially. And they were about to hit their 10-year anniversary of their first restaurant in New York being open. And her vision was to come in and to be to understand that like there's a lot of things that we've been doing right, but there's a lot of things that we need to do different if we're going to continue to be successful. Because when they first opened, they were the only barbecue place, the only good barbecue place in New York, right? But since then, God, like New York has a ton of really excellent barbecue. And so you couldn't just rely on being good food anymore. There had to be a lot more to it. And so her her goal was to really bring in people who could again help reinvigorate, help drive. It was a tough one because I the conversations I had around taking that job uh, were about, you know, some pretty grand plans in terms of what my role would be and what I'd get to do. And then uh, I got there and that ended up not being it. <laughs> uh, like that COO ended up parting ways with the company about eight months later. And I was kind of here in limbo and just lessons learned on that one for sure. But I, I learned how to cook a really good brisket. Definitely one of those things where I was sold a vision on, on what I'd be able to do and what my role would be that then ended up not coming into fruition. And that was an important learning, you know, learning opportunity for me in terms of just understanding a what not to do as somebody who employs people, you know, I think a lot of times it can be very, if you're just in such desperate need of people, you're willing to tell them, you know, what their future could look like without really realizing that or being honest about the likelihood of that. And that felt not amazing to be on the wrong side of that. Um, and so again, some, some good things that I learned there and now have a, a really <laughs> intricate understanding of, of barbecue and how smokers work and, and how to get the best out of the the meat that goes in there. I knew pretty quickly into that, that like, that's what I wanted to get out of it. And then it wasn't going to continue to be my thing. After that, you go to Spring Palace. What exactly is that? Is it? It's Spring Place. It's essentially a co-working meets restaurant meets event space. So it's a private members club that, that operates out of Tribeca. There's also a Beverly Hills location now. And think of it as like a Soho house, but with much more focus on events and event activation. What ended up getting me there was Brian, who had been the GM of Royalton, gave me a call and was like, I need somebody I trust to come run these outlets for me, William, because he had just taken over as COO of Spring Place. And so, you know, it was again one of those things where 
the relationship that I had with somebody who I, I used to work for really, you know, paid dividends in the long run uh, because they knew they could trust me. And they knew it, that um, I, even if, and this has been very true of me, most of the, the jobs that I've taken and the steps that I've taken along the way, on paper, I probably wasn't qualified, right? In the sense that like, I didn't have exact applicable experience. But I proved throughout my time working for people that like, I'm able to learn as I go. You know, I think some of that is, is having the humility to, to say, like, these are the things that I don't know. And these are the questions that I'm going to have to ask. But I, I will do that. I will ask those questions, you know, and, and even really kind of to, to this day, my most recent um, kind of, you know, promotion within 21C, um, on, on paper, I'm not qualified. But at no point did I during like when I decided to apply or, or any of that, at no point did I think I wasn't. It's I think resumes don't always tell the best and, and fullest story. But so it, it's that phrase, I need somebody that I trust to, to come do this with me. And so I kind of went over there and a ton of co-working space for majorly people in like the fashion and design and art industry, as well as a ton of really raw studio space that got used for uh, private events, but also Tribeca Film Festival was headquartered there. New York Fashion Week uh, was was headquartered there. We did uh, Noma's first and only ever uh, United States pop-up happened with us, with our team. So like things like that, there was just a lot of fun programming and activation. Doing something like that where it's not exactly a traditional restaurant, right? Doing all these events, there is obviously the private membership aspect. So there is kind of a restaurant component, but do you know going into it. Okay. I see the landscape. I need to get out of this exactly what I want, but like, this isn't going to be something I do for five years. Yeah, totally. I knew that 100%, largely because I wasn't in the kitchen. My role there was director of restaurants. So I essentially oversaw the, the outlets that we had, and that would go from two to four at any given time, because we did a lot of pop-up activations where we would partner with uh, outside outside restaurants that would come in and we would like we would literally build replicas of their dining room in our studio space. We would have service with them for two months. Like that was the kind of stuff that we did. And so, yes, what I wanted to get out of my time there to validate my front of house experience and to have gotten kind of the, the, the true managerial oversight there and the logistics piece of it to, to be able to understand how to, to execute that and how to from start to finish project manage something like that. I'm sure you can imagine uh, the, the demands and the challenges of something like that, um, you know, fluctuating how many outlets you have open and what the concepts of those are. And let's just say that the, the clientele of that building were, were very discerning and very sure of what they wanted. You know, I think as an industry, we are very much shifting away from uh the, the statement that the customer is always right. That is the place where it really drove home for me. They're definitely not, uh, and they shouldn't be. I knew what I wanted to get out of there, but I also knew that like there was only so much time that I wanted to spend away from the, the creative piece of it. And that's really, you know, what I get from playing with food. And so I told Brian, like, I'll do this for like a year or something and I'll kind of help you figure out what this looks like. But this definitely won't be a long-term thing for me. Uh, and so I knew that going. So then how'd you wind up with the coffee company? Because that's another situation where you're you're not in a kitchen. You're running multiple outlets, expanding. So you're getting to the point where you're a couple years 
removed from a kitchen almost in your career too. Well, you know, I think the thing that was really perfect about that role, and I will be really candid to say that like, if the pandemic had not happened, I would probably still be with that company. It was that perfect, beautiful combination of there was creativity. I was coming up with those menu items, doing that whole piece of things. But then I wasn't the person who had to be opening the kitchen up every morning or closing it down every night or there for every service, right? And I think for me, that is the dream that I chase is being able to, to be creative and have fun and teach people uh, and run an operation, but never to have, not never, but now as you know, I, my life has kind of progressed, like I don't want to necessarily be beholden to the day-to-day operations of any single unit. I don't want to be that first call. I want to be a second call, right? I want to be the person that a car drives into the front of the restaurant, which happened here last night. I'm hearing about it from the manager and they're telling me what they've done to already handle the situation. And I'm helping making sure they're good. Like I want to be the second call. That's what that was. That's where I was is is I was uh, really focusing on kind of the the menu development piece and making sure that we had um, stuff that was going to be just really craveable, teaching the teams how to, to execute it really refining the operations and making sure that we were profitable in our existing units and then opening more units. That company is going to go on to do some some really great and excellent things. Um, and I'm excited to see where they go. You know, And again, if, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, I don't know that, that I wouldn't still be working for them because that was kind of in the same way that the role that I'm in now is kind of the, the ideal position for me. So when the pandemic happens, New York shuts down, obviously. Is that how you wind up back in Cincinnati? Just families there? Kind of, yeah. You know, New York shut down, scrambled to try to figure out how to make it work. And one of the things that, that my company did and that a lot of other company did is, companies did is that anybody who was on salary had to take a, we did a 50% cut. I think none of us truly understood at the time how long this was going to last, right? We all thought, I remember leaving the restaurant the day of the shutdown and, and thinking, two weeks, we'll be back in two weeks. And obviously that wasn't the case. And so I hustled like hell to try to make it work because my rent didn't go down by 50%. I started like delivering like meal kits out of the the basement of one of the, our our commissary. Like I got the the guys to say like, the owners, like I said, like, listen, like I can do this. I'll give you everything I have, but I also can't survive on this much. So let me use the kitchen. I'll bring them the food and I'll sell it. So I was hustling. And at some point, in I think it was probably around July, um, was I was kind of walking from one location to the next because you didn't feel comfortable taking public transportation. So I was getting my steps in. I just thought to myself, like, I I just don't know if it's supposed to be this hard. Maybe I should look at going home because Cincinnati has has a really like up and coming food scene and it has for some time. And, you know, I my, because my parents have stayed here throughout, I've always come home to visit. And every time I come home to visit, they take you to a new restaurant that's really good. There were a couple of years there where the best meal that I had all year was in Cincinnati. Um, and so I knew that it was a scene that like it wouldn't be like moving, you know, to the middle of I don't know, North Dakota or something that there was there was a, a captive audience that there was already some of that groundwork laid. And so on a whim, I looked I looked on a culinary agents and I was like, are there any like executive chef jobs or anything like that open in Cincinnati? And there was one and it was executive chef for 21C. And I was actually lucky enough that I had I had met our COO a couple of times at some some conferences. I knew that I was capable of being an integral part of the company. That is what I needed. And so the way that I've really come to kind of be able to, to like describe to people kind of what making that move felt like is that at the best of times, it would have been a good opportunity, right? Good company, good job. 
restaurant that's well established in the worst of times, it was a lifeline. And that I will forever be thankful for that. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget. I was so nervous for my tasting, not because I was nervous about them liking the food or not. Like I knew it was good. I'm like at a point in my career where like, I know if something's good or not. <laughs> and I was like, that went really well. I know that was good. I was nervous because I knew how much was writing for me on just the ability to make this move and feel good about it rather than I guess I'll figure it out. I feel incredibly lucky that the the stars aligned as they did because they were I had to get here very quickly for a tasting because they were in the process of writing an offer for someone else. But I knew I knew that my story was really good and I knew that they'd be eager to have kind of that prodigal child comes home story to be able to tell to people. And so I was just like, I'll get there in two days if you need me. And so so that's what I did. So when you start at the restaurant, how did you change it from the pre-pandemic version, you know, that exists? Obviously it was in a different chef at that time and everything, but they closed for a while. I think some of the press before the pandemic was kind of if I recall, like the restaurant had gotten a little stale or, or maybe something like that. Yeah, it was totally lackluster. So how do you change that and then also rehab kind of the reputation too? The word reinvigorate was like the word of the day for, for many, many months. And it was really about bringing excitement back uh, into to the walls of Metropole. And so that meant... I changed out the entire menu very quickly uh, once I got there because I was like, all of this feels stale. Something that was really interesting that I learned in my first week there that one of the sous chefs told me was, uh, and I was floored by this, I was Metropole's first chef who had not been trained by the chef before me, right? Which, hey, there's a ton of really excellent things about promoting from within, but potentially kind of the, the flip side to that is that it's like a game of telephone, right? Where like an ultimate vision gets diluted and changed and adjusted and kind of watered down. And that's really, really where we were. You know, there were some dishes that were considered sacred that I was like, there's no reason that should be sacred. It's not good. It probably was at one point, right? It probably was. But uh, along the way, somebody stopped loving that dish and now it's not good anymore. And so if we feel like we have to keep it on the menu just because like, then I'm not your person. And so we really blew up the menu. I get excited by food, right? And so I changed the menu frequently and I ran specials and it was started with getting the staff re-engaged and excited about what they were helping to produce and helping to sell. And then that trickled down. It trickled into kind of just the, the guests that were joining us. It, it was a really weird time to be starting. I started in August of 2020. And so we still had all, we had a curfew. We had these rules about, you know, where people could sit and how many people could be in the diet, like all of those things that like feel like a distant memory now. I think it actually worked out really well for us because it really gave us the time to hit our stride, to be serving people and kind of feeling out how, what was working, what wasn't working before really getting inundated with people again. And so we had slowly but surely been able to kind of, you know, serve 10 to 15 people a night for a little bit. And then that let, it felt, it just felt great to be serving people. And they were all leaving and feeling really good. We just knew that it was a matter of just kind of biding our time and waiting for um, the floodgates to eventually open again. And that when they did, we wanted to be ready. We wanted to be in a position where we felt like we were putting our best foot forward and we were proud. And every menu change that we did in those first couple of months um, was about making the food and the menu better than the one that was there before it. And that served us well. Um, and I think, you know, I think people have definitely started to look uh, to Metropole again as being 
a place that didn't just used to be good, but is good again. Do you think the pandemic shutdown and pandemic restrictions in a way helped because you had to basically relaunch this restaurant, this brand in a hotel. So it gave you more time to perfect things where if you took that job and it was you know normal and stuff was open, you would have had to accelerate a lot of that. And maybe it would have taken longer in the end to get to where it is now. I think that's some of it. But I also think the thing that really was on our side was the fact that it almost felt like a second opening. Somebody could have come to Metropole 10 times in the previous nine years. No matter who was there, there was always going to be the first time they came back after the pandemic. When that happened was different for a lot of people, right? Like there were a lot of people who did not go out to eat for a very long time. We started to think about like, this is a second chance to have a first impression. And that is what we would not have gotten if this had never happened. I, I think, yes, it probably would have taken a little more time to, to make the changes, implement, and like to, to do all that and figure it out. It would have been harder because it's always harder to, to paradigm shift from within the paradigm. And when you're serving 150 people at night, it's really hard to find the time to come up with new dishes. So that was certainly helpful, but it really was this idea that this was a reintroduction, not just because we said it was, but because it actually was. And so that really became kind of just the underlying thought was like, this is our second chance, um, but we only get one second chance. So it's got to be really good. And so we really wanted to make sure that when people came back for the first time, that, that they were getting just the absolute best that we could offer them because we knew that that would be impactful. And that's a lot to do with the food, but it also had to do with the service and the experience and the feeling of like safety around it, right? That was a really interesting thing to kind of just think about and throw in the mix there. When you take on the food and beverage director duties, what's the biggest difference or challenge between previous roles when you've done that, where Cincinnati has this kind of local brewery scene that, you know, New York City doesn't really have that. So you're mainly dealing with reps or what's kind of the biggest difference or challenge that you kind of encounter? It's the staffing piece of it. It is a lot easier to do to wear multiple hats when you have a team around you that is fully staffed can do the things that they need to do to help kind of support the operation. I like I think a lot of people was very, very adamant in my thought process that this is the staffing challenges that we're going through right now. They're temporary, right? They're going to go away. People are going to come back to work when they feel safe and then it's going to be off to the races. Like for a year there, I was saying, give it, I think in two months, we'll be, we'll be back. That's been, this entire thing started. That's been the biggest challenge is that when you have a, a role or a, a piece of your job is to really be a dreamer. Again, that's really hard to do when you also have to be the first call on your day away when you're trying to recharge because somebody didn't show up or they did show up, but they showed up and you took their temperature and it was too high. And then you gave them a test and they tested positive, And now other people are testing positive. Like the inability for any of our teams to get into a rhythm because we're either not staffed enough or because uh, when we think that we're out of the, you know, out of the red and that we are staffed enough, all of a sudden somebody gets sick or all of a sudden something happens. That I think has been the most challenging thing for us all to navigate. We never feel like we're fully rooted in the job that we're supposed to be doing because we're also having to do 
other jobs. I mean, there was a, a time there again where back when I was at Noche, I was washing dishes to, to get us through a service. And again, like that's the job, right? Like you do whatever you have to do to get the team through the night. And if that means putting on your headphones and putting on a, a wet apron and just getting in there because you're the only person to do it, that's what you do. But it makes it hard to do some of the other things that you're supposed to be doing, that you want to be doing, that you know are a part of why you're there. And so I think that's probably not unique to Cincinnati, but I certainly think it's unique to time um, and to kind of current circumstance. And that for me, I had that same dual role in New York in 2017 or so. And it's just, it's night and day. It's night and day. June of this year, you got promoted up to senior director of food and beverage at 21C. And, but you're still, you know, the executive chef at Metropole. Um, you have a CDC that kind of runs the day to day. What does this promotion entail? What does this change for you and your kind of day to day? I mean, everything. So ultimately, I work with the, the teams across all of our properties now. And I kind of look at myself as, as being kind of the intermediary between the vision of the, the corporate team and the, the needs of the team who is then responsible for executing that vision, right? And so I work very closely with our COO, who ultimately, you know, she and I work together and, and we do that. We set the vision, we set the goals, be it financial goals. Uh, we just got through budgeting season, be it like existential. This restaurant feels like it's lost its way. We need to, you know, refine the brand again. And I, you know, we work together to kind of come up with those directives. And then I get on an airplane and go to the different properties and, and work with those teams to help them get there. You know, I'm lucky enough that, you know, my CDC here is incredibly strong and I still get to kind of be the creative director is kind of how I think of it, of Metropole. And we work on the menu together and it's a good opportunity for him uh, to be able to get kind of some of those reps in and, and to really understand what that looks like and to really refine his palate. A lot of my time is really spent um, helping the other properties navigate challenges. Uh, and, and there are no shortage of those challenges these days. You spent a number of years of your career working in hotel restaurants. What's the biggest benefit to being involved with a property like that instead of a, just a standalone restaurant? Deeper pockets. You know, I think inherently because of the way that hotel businesses are run, there's a much higher margin on rooms than there is on a, a plate of steak. Um, and so, you know, their food and beverage has to has to work to achieve a certain level of profitability. The room side really is what what flows through the most. And so what that means is that if both sides are being run well, you don't have to wait three months to fix an oven that's broken because you can't afford it right now, right? Like we do have to be really discerning and we do have to be smart, but it's those things that I think sometimes we take for granted that like having everything work, being able to replace your RoboCoup when somebody drops it, right? Like, and not having to just completely upend your menu because you no longer have a RoboCoup for a little bit. Like those are all things that I've experienced in, in independent restaurants. You know, the, the flip side, and this is something that we're talking about at a lot of our properties right now, because Metropole is about to have its 10 year anniversary uh, our property in Louisville is coming up on 17 years. Like all of our restaurants are, are getting up there in age. And a lot of independent restaurants don't make it that long, right? Like they have to be really, really special to make it that long because they only have their own financials to rely on. And so the, the kind of flip side to that and the things that we have to think about that other people don't necessarily, it, it's a good problem to have, but it is still a problem, is just because something has been working a certain way for the last 10 years doesn't mean it should work that way 
for the next 10 years and really being deliberate and intentional about talking about the things that have worked, talking about the things that don't work anymore and how things need to be moving forward. And this is a little bit of what Metropole was experiencing when I first got here. There was a lot of conversations kind of were built around this idea of, well, this is how it's always been. This is what we've always done, not what should we be doing moving forward. That's a really big focus of mine kind of with our teams. And again, I think the pandemic happening kind of forced us to have some of these conversations just by virtue of like, sometimes you can't do things the way you used to, but it's a really, really important piece of the puzzle. And it's part of what I like about kind of the strategy of running operations that are in hotels. You get the opportunity to have longevity in a way that some other independent restaurants don't. And with that comes, you know, great responsibility to to just kind of figure out how to not let that make you complacent. P&L is always important in a restaurant. How is it different with a hotel restaurant? Is it just the numbers are bigger so you can absorb some losses where if you're an independent restaurant, you have these very slim margins where everything has to kind of be accounted for, like you have a bit more leeway because there's more cash flow or is it just kind of apples and oranges between the two? It's a little bit of both. You know, at the end of the day, the, the food and beverage portion of the P&L needs to look a certain way, right? We, we can't see negative numbers and we have, you know, each property, depending on its specific makeup, you know, has uh, different, you know, profitability goals. We push the teams to, to hit those profitability goals uh, in the same way that we would if we were, you know, all independent restaurants. You know, the things that that help our P&L are things like banquets and catering and the event space that we have, right? Those tend to, you know, when, when you serve 100 people dinner, and that dinner is $85 a head, that's a, you know, a higher check average than we would be able to actualize in the restaurant. And we can do that at the same time as having a busy Friday night service, right? And so base is really helpful. Uh, it allows us to have multiple different revenue streams uh, that really help to strengthen the business because the margins on our BNC offerings tend to be a little bit better than they do uh, on just you know something on the dinner menu. But again, like food and beverage has to carry its weight you know, where the difference is, is that in, in a hotel, for example, you have an engineering department of, you know, teammates who trained in various aspects of, you know, mechanics and electricity and plumbing and all of that. And so if, uh, you know, you're having a, a leak in your pipe uh, behind your, your bar, if you're an independent restaurant, you may have to call a plumber and that's going to add up over time. We pick up a walkie talkie and call down to engineering and say, hey, can you send somebody up to take a look at this? And so that's where we get to really capitalize on kind of just like the economies of scale, right? Like that that person isn't just on property to fix something if it breaks in the restaurant, they're here to do if an AC breaks in one of the rooms or if a hallway needs to be painted, we get to benefit from that. Like you said, some of the restaurants have been open for a number of years. Is the biggest challenge getting locals, non-residents or people around the area to understand that the restaurant is open to the public and not exclusive to guests? Because I still think there's people who, when they hear this restaurant is in a hotel, they go, oh, it's probably filled with guests, probably won't be able to get a reservation or, or something like that. Is that still one of the biggest challenges is getting the public to kind of understand like it's in a hotel, but it's kind of its own thing. Some of our properties struggle with that a little bit more. And a lot of that just depends on the specific city that they're in and their specific location within the city. Um, We are very proud of the fact that where I would say a lot of hotel companies kind of cut their losses on food and beverage and um, follow a formula and really don't try to go too far in one direction because it's not where they make their money. It's an amenity. 
we're the opposite, right? We're all in on, on our restaurants and all of our restaurants have independent branding. They are all specifically built uh, with the intention of appealing to the city in which they kind of reside. And so that's a really important piece of it for us. And, and you know, like uh, the thing that I find myself saying the most when I'm interviewing people to come work for us with us in, in the restaurants is that we feel very strongly that we do not operate hotel restaurants. We operate really excellent restaurants that happen to be in a hotel. And that being a through line for us um, has been really important. And I think it's what makes our restaurants special. We do work really, really hard. It's, it's a part of 21C's ethos in general, not just like from the restaurant piece, but from the, the hotel and museum piece is that uh, we engage with the community in which we reside. We would only do ourselves a disservice and we would only do the community that we're in a disservice if we didn't try to appeal to that community and to be a part of the local landscape. That's a really important thing for us because without the local support, none of our restaurants would be successful. You know, where we have it in, in mass, uh, it's because very intentional choice to try to create that dynamic. And where we are still working on it, we're still working on it because it's really important to us. When changing over the menu, now that you've been there for a year or two, how do you approach it where, you know, a lot of restaurants, if they're independently owned, they do kind of seasonality. They have more flexibility where they they don't have to have as much food on hand, probably. Do you still have that flexibility with the hotel aspect or is it kind of like, yeah, we'll change stuff here or there, but it's really four times a year where we kind of turn it over? No, I think we've got a ton of flexibility and, and probably more than an independent restaurant does because we have a lot of different outlets for it. I can bring in you know, multiple cases of something. I can buy as many ramps as I want because I know that I've got all of these different places that I can use them our expectation. And I really, it bothers me anytime now that like a restaurant that I see or any one of our restaurants like touts seasonality and locality as like a being a part of their personality, because yeah, it fucking should be like, that's yeah, no shit. Like you shouldn't be, I, I don't know. I feel very strongly about that, but uh, that is the expectation. Like we want consistently changing menus. There is a lot of our properties do a slow roll, right? Ramps come in season. All right, we're going to put this dish on and we're going to put this dish on. And then, you know, six weeks later, four weeks later, you try to place an order for them. They're like, mm, they're done. Sorry. And you're like, okay, we're going to have to change this dish, right? There is the expected freedom to do that. And I think that's also why we're able, we have some really excellent chefs um, with some really excellent pedigrees across our various properties. And I think that is part of why we're, we're able to get talent at that level is because we both encourage and expect it. You're from the area, as we kind of talked about, definitely been cooking in the area for a couple of years. How has Cincinnati's food and beverage scene changed since not just you've been involved, but since you've been visiting and coming back and everything? And where do you think it still needs improvement or needs changes? And then, you know, where do you see it headed? It's really funny. When I was growing up, um, if my parents had a special occasion or like a special date night, like I knew exactly where they were going because there was only one or two nice restaurants that they'd go to, right? It was Masonette or Palatino's. I think the, the biggest difference is, is that now there are, are just, there's no shortage of different restaurants that you could go to that would be an impeccable time and worth a celebration. Some of it is just like the sheer volume of restaurants that have opened that cover a wide range of, of different types of cuisine. Where I look forward to seeing us go is, is I look forward to seeing some more women leading kitchens in the city, because I think that's something that we're still a little bit underrepresented there. 
I continue to look forward to to new areas of the city developing and having, you know, not just singular little pockets of really excellent restaurants, but really kind of spreading out throughout the different neighborhoods and all that. How do you get more women in restaurants and creating that diversity pool from that sense where, because it is still a male dominated industry, it's getting better, but still, you know, you look at any of the restaurant lists and most of them, I'd probably say 95% are probably run by males, mostly white men too as well. But how does that change? How do more women want to get involved with an industry that previously has been so toxic and just went through, you know, two years ago, a calling of itself where people who were doing terrible things were being called out and kind of put on blast really uh, through, you know, social media accounts, you know, we're still people had to put in, you know, anonymous stuff just so they didn't have repercussions on their careers. I think visibility is really important, right? And I think having conversations around it is really important. And I think you can't be what you don't see. But I think also I want women to come work for me so that I can teach them how to do this job as a woman, right? Like, because I think there are some nuances to it. And um, I want people to feel emboldened to jump in, eat first, kind of like I have. And so telling my story, I hope is helpful. And I hope that I think, again, as the city's scene grows and more and more restaurants open that are excellent, it will give people the opportunity to not have to, I think, Some of the challenge in the past, and I don't think this is unique to Cincinnati, it's just kind of a broad statement, is that if there are only five good restaurants and you want to have a future in this industry, you have to work at one of those five restaurants. And it doesn't matter if that is a good work environment for you or not. So the more good restaurants there are, uh, the more discerning people can be about where they choose to, to spend their time and where they choose to, to work at. Good behavior will get rewarded. <laughs> good management will get rewarded, right? Because people will want to work for those people um, and feel comfortable growing underneath those people. And there will be, to kind of use your phrase, a natural culling of, of the other places where either, you know, the people in charge are going to have to take a hard look at what they're doing and change it, or they're just not going to be able to continue to find success. What's next for you professionally? I'm all in on this job. I am incredibly excited for the role that I'm in. We're in the, the process of opening our next property in St. Louis, which will happen in, in early 2023. We've got a pretty strong pipeline. And I feel like something that's always really important to me is that I feel like I'm learning. Uh, If I don't feel like I'm learning, then I'm not happy. I feel like I'm learning a ton every day. And sometimes it feels overwhelming, but more often than not, it feels really good. For me right now, like all I can kind of see and focus on is like, what do I get to learn from this role and, and where does this go? That's a pretty unique thing for me. Like you can see it. We just talked about it. Like I jumped around a lot, right? I moved around a lot. The times during my career where I have not been thinking about what job I want next have been few and far between. This is one of them. I'm in the job I want next. And I am continuing to have to work to get better at it. Like, I want to be really good at this job. I want to get really good at this job. Uh, That's not going to happen overnight. I've got a lot that I do well and a lot that I can do better. So I am just so focused on learning more about the role, learning more about the company, understanding more what my team needs from me. Uh, to, for, for them to be successful. And uh, I'm learning management at a very large scale. And I like that. Do you still consider yourself a chef? I do. I think once you're a chef, you're always a chef. There are still things that I, I try to do, special event dinners for fundraiser for No Get Hungry. Like I'm involved in all of those things. And I think chef is about so much more than just cooking, right? Like there are a lot of really excellent cooks who are really awful chefs. And being a chef is about being a leader. It's about being somebody who kind of drives the vision of a restaurant and of an, of an operation. And even if I'm not cooking every day, 
right now, those things are still very true of me. And so whenever somebody says chef, I still look and see if they're talking to me. So this next question comes from previous guest on the podcast, Carrie Young. She's a private chef uh, here in Columbus, Ohio, kind of does her own supper clubs and stuff like that. She left behind a question for you. If you stop cooking, what would you want to do next with your life? That's a great question. I always thought I would really like to coach basketball at like a collegiate level. And a lot of what I do on my day to day is like very much about like coaching a group of people towards a common goal. I love kind of working with people who are competitive and I know very few groups of people who are more competitive than athletes. I think that's probably what I would have done if I hadn't been given that shot in that kitchen and hadn't liked it. Uh, And I think that's probably where I would find myself. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? I got asked this recently on a panel. It really made me think, what's the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you fix it? This next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, does working in a restaurant that's in a hotel still carry a stigma throughout the industry? Probably. You know, I think stigmas don't disappear overnight. Um, But I think ultimately, especially in the age of of social media, it is very easy to give people a glimpse into kind of what your day-to-day looks like. And I think where the stigma comes from is this idea that, that hotel chefs are clipboard chefs, right? That they don't actually cook, that they don't actually spend time doing anything other than scheduling and and placing orders, right? That they're all administrative. I think it's very easy to show the outside world kind of what your day-to-day looks like. And that's something that like I do a lot. I think it's disappearing. And I think also the company that you work for matters in, in that you know particular sense. I think 21C has a, a reputation for, for opening really excellent restaurants that could be independent restaurants. There are other hotel brands that I won't name names, but where I think probably the stigma would be a little bit heavier. Like there are things that you can learn from any job, um, regardless of whether or not people look upon it in a certain way. And I think for me, you know, I would just always think about like, am I going to get what I need to get out of this experience? As long as it's in service of my, you know, my long-term plans and my long-term goal, then that's all that matters to me. So this last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far when you look back on it? Probably Jared, who was the culinary director, gave me my first executive chef job. There are a lot of things that he taught me at first about who I wanted to be and the kind of chef that I wanted to be. And then shit, I mean, like long term, who I didn't want to be. But I think that's just as valuable sometimes. Again, I think the the kind of kickstart to my career and the trajectory that I've been on really kind of started with that. Uh, you're not ready, but we're going to do this anyway conversation. And uh, I owe a lot to that. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Uh, everybody else calls them cake testers. I call them beat testers. I must always have one on me. Restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario I give is usually, you know, a person gets stuck at the airport. They reach out to you. Hey, you know, where should I eat? You guys aren't open. And you point them in this direction. I really love Mita's, uh, which is just around the corner from us. And that chef, you know, Jose Salazar, who has just had such a, a profound influence on the trajectory of, you know, the, the restaurant scene in, in Cincinnati. He's been a semifinalist for James Beard for a couple of years in a row. But to me, 
that is the food that I want to eat all day, every day. It is craveable. It is thoughtful. There's a lot about what they do there that just in terms of like approach is very similar to what, what I strive to do with the food that we create. Um, and I, I could eat that paella every day for the rest of my life and be happy. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So a place you haven't visited yet, but you still want to get to. And then a restaurant you haven't dined at yet, but it's at the top of your list. I've never been to France as like cliche as it is to say, probably like I'd love to go to Paris, just kind of be able to meander around and, and stumble into to places and just eat a ton of, of really good food. Bucket list from a restaurant perspective, there's like so many and that's the challenge. And deciding which one I want to put at the top of that list is hard. I think Canlist is a restaurant that um, both from pedigree, but also I remain beyond impressed by how ahead of the curve in making adjustments to their operations they were when COVID was really starting to hit. We were all still thinking about, is this actually going to be a thing when they had already switched over their model? I think adding to that, that's kind of like the family history of the restaurant. I think it's just a really interesting, they're that perfect example of like, they don't rest on their laurels and they don't rely on constantly trying to be better and constantly trying to follow what their guests want. And I think that's really fascinating. And so I think I would love to experience that. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working. I once saw another line cook cook a whole chicken in seven minutes, you know, dropped in the fryer, then, you know, thrown in the oven, then back in the fryer and in a pan. The chef in me now is like, thinks about that and just like loses their mind and like how awful that chicken must have been. But like, I was a little impressed when it happened. Could not believe he got it done that fast and still got out on time. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, candy, fast food, anything like that that's unhealthy, but uh, you still can't help yourself? I have had a long, lifelong love affair with Hebrew National Hot Dogs, like the ultimate quick food that I want to eat all the time. I went through a phase when I was a little kid where I refused to eat anything but Hebrew National Hot Dogs. So that is definitely high on my list. And then the person who has an office right next to me just got a really big bag of ballpark peanuts. And I've been sneaking in their office pretty frequently and, and stealing some of those as well. And so that's that's on my list right now too. Favorite Instagram account you follow? I really like Chef Tiffany Faison's restaurants. And she's kind of shifted a little bit more recently because now she's like on a lot of Food Network shows. And so it's a lot of like that world of things, which is a little less interesting to me. Her various restaurant concepts and kind of the approach she takes to managing them, I find I like it a lot. And so that's probably high up there. But I just I follow so many restaurants. And like in general, Instagram is just such a source of like inspiration and thinking about food. And I'm working with my CDC on kind of menu development and that side of things. And I felt for him like for a while there, it was feeling like a burden to him, right? And so kind of the thing that I said to like, let's shift how we think about this is let's use the phrase like, what if we like, what if we did this? What if we did that? What if we took this ingredient and cooked it this way? The excitement of that. And that's what I get from Instagram when I when I look at the the other food that people are doing. Like I never ever want to recreate a dish that I see somebody else do use. I'll see somebody use an ingredient in a way that maybe I've even seen it before, but it's just really fucking beautiful. And it makes me think, man, what if I took that kind of idea, but then I, I moved it over here? Like that Instagram in it's just whole is what gets me thinking, what if we? That's the fun piece of it all. Favorite dish, favorite thing you ever cooked or created? Kind of looking back on your career, you can point to this as kind of the moment you knew you could be a professional chef. 
it's really simple now. And it's something that a lot of people have done. But being put in charge of this in one of the, the first restaurants I was in is what it was the first time that I myself was in charge of making the kind of food I saw in the pages of the books that I obsessed over. And it was uh, when I was learning to make fresh pasta, one of the dishes on on the menu was uh, a raviolo with, you know, an egg yolk and then a ricotta, basil, copa, just making that and A, being trusted to make it and B, being able to. Like, again, that just kind of drove home for me, like, oh, you could actually do this. This is the kind of food that, like, you've been reading about, dreaming about, like, obsessing over. And here you are actually making it with your own hands. Like, that is, that could be your path. That was very profound. And again, at the time, egg yolks and a raviolo were very new. They're not so new anymore. So I'm sure it, it seems lackluster now, but it was, it was a really big deal at the time. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is or was. If you were, was there a moment, episode, scene that stands out to you about him still? And if you weren't, was there anybody else who was on TV, a culinary personality, an Emeril, a Julia Child, somebody along those lines that you kind of always gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career? No. And I guess like for me, it was the competition of being a chef and wanting to be the best that really drove me when I first started. And so it was a lot less about kind of those like individual shows about food or cooking and more like the Iron Chef America. I go back and I look at notebooks. I have notebooks filled with notes that I took as I was watching those episodes and like thinking and like seeing what people were doing and how they were using different ingredients and like same thing from Top Chef. The food media that really got me, that I really like, gravitated towards was those, those competition shows and less like the actual personality-based like food shows. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Instagram is miniature underscore van. And that's really where I do the majority of my social media. I've not yet branched out to TikTok, though I've been told I should, but I don't get it. I, it makes me feel old to say I don't. Um, but, but most of my stuff runs through Instagram. Metropole has its own account. It's open seven days a week. Seven days a week, Metropole on Walnut. Uh, and then, you know, 21C Museum Hotels. Uh, we, we operate in nine, soon to be 10 different cities in the Midwest and lots more on the horizon. Lots of good things coming. 21C has a website and they'll have all the different uh, locations of properties and everything too there as well. But we're going to be in Cincinnati a month and a half in December. Super excited to to eat at Metropole and try the menu that, you know, you've kind of put together. And, you know, I remember when the press thing came out, when it was, you know, you were coming to Cincinnati and you're taking over, you know, this restaurant that was just kind of becoming afterthought in the scene. And I think there was a lot of skepticism around like if that restaurant could be what it was or be good again or anything like that. And fast forward a year or two later, and it's, one of the highest reviewed restaurants in the city. And there's a lot of different restaurants in Cincinnati, but being in a hotel and downtown and everything too, there's all these kind of separate challenges, but it seems to have overcome every single one of them. And it seems to be back on the path of being kind of this mainstay in Cincinnati's food and beverage scene, which is really awesome to see. It's certainly not been without the hard work of, of a lot of people. So I think it is really something that that is has been a, a true team effort. And, and I cannot say enough about the service team that we have. I think it doesn't matter what we do in the kitchen if it's not matched out on the floor. We have some just truly, truly incredible 
you know, people out uh, on our floor and, and a couple of them have been with Metropole since, since day one. You know, that's been an incredible resource for me, you know, as I first started and, you know, really kind of got my feet uh, underneath me. They were never shy about telling me what they thought would work and wouldn't work and never shy about giving me the feedback. And, and it has been such a collaborative effort because, you know, there are no people more invested in the success of Metropole than those who have been with it since day one. Um, and so I feel incredibly lucky. The team that we have around us has ultimately been the, the team that's made this possible. Um, and I am as proud of that as I am of the dishes on the menu. I'm super excited to try it. Um, looking forward to it. Been on the list for a while. So appreciate you, you know, coming on the podcast, sharing kind of your career, looking forward to kind of continued growth and everything that, you know, you're putting together for future expansion uh, for 21C and all the programs that they got going on. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun to chat. A big thanks again to Vanessa for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of her day to jump on and chat about her career and 21C Museum Hotels, uh, Cincinnati, the food scene there, and also Metropole, the restaurant where she's the executive chef. So you can find her there. Uh, you can also find her at various 21C Museum Hotel properties, uh, depending on if they're opening a new restaurant or new location or whatever too as well. You can find her on Instagram at miniature underscore van. Also follow the restaurant on Instagram at Metropole on Walnut. And then also the hotel accounts you can follow at 21C Cincinnati, which is the account for the Cincinnati Hotel. And then also at 21C Hotels, which is the overall account for all their different properties and locations. You can follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Make sure to check out the website, SpoonMob.com. And also make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. Appreciate everybody listening. Appreciate everybody continuing to help spread the word. Uh, if you're new, you know, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support and listenership. Uh, we got more cool episodes on the way. So like I said, we're trying to do two episodes a week uh, for the month of December. So far, so good. Uh, we might miss a day, you know, maybe uh, miss a Tuesday or something, potentially if we get backed up on some stuff, but all seems to be going according to plan so far. So we will have another new episode for you guys on Thursday. And until then, we'll talk to you guys later. <laughs>